Well, welcome back to our course on hermeneutics. We're on the second portion of the course. We call it exegesis. I've explained already the distinction between exegesis and the Bible study methods idea. So today... We're going, to com- we're going to continue in the introduction that I gave you last week. We talked about... What right do you want me to go ahead and open in prayer? Yeah, that's, yeah, thanks. I almost forgot that. Yeah, go okay. ahead and open the right. please. Father in heaven, we are so very grateful for the provision of a Redeemer, a substitute that you provided to take our place so that we can have fellowship with you. Thank you for preserving your word and for the legacy of men who have carved out a method whereby we can reliably interpret the scripture. We thank you for Shaper Seminary, for our teacher the right. We ask for the enablement of the Holy Spirit to help us understand these lessons uh, and to guide our instruction. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Steve. So exegesis, hermeneutics, science and art of interpretation, the exegetical portion is the art part, takes practice to get into the text itself, and we're going to begin the process that develops that skill of interpreting the text itself. As we've said before, the science portion deals with the principles that I've given you Part of what we will ultimately end up looking at, the principles that we utilize in the process of exegesis. Just a reminder, we're talking about the grammatical, historical, contextual approach or method. And I explained it's grammatical because it focuses on grammar or language, all of the Conventions of language, it's historical, because the Bible is set within a historical context, and it's very important to understand something of that in order to properly understand any given passage. Contextual, which is a broad principle that is applicable in virtually any communication, not just biblical, but especially biblical communication. And especially today in in the church where this is sometimes often neglected. People will pick a verse here and a verse there, put them together. They may not be as closely related as whoever's putting them together thinks. And sometimes uh, you get a misunderstanding concerning what the author intended. And in fact, the grammatical, historical, contextual method, the goal of everything that we'll be doing through this process is attempting to discern what the original author intended to communicate. We abbreviate it by calling it the literal method. Literal in that we seek the author's intended meaning. Not literal in the idea that there are not figures of speech or non-literal language, but literal in the sense that if the author intends to use a figure of speech, 
the author himself will give you clues when he's doing that. So it includes metaphorical language as well. And again, hermeneutics, we've looked at the general principles. We're going to look after we go through the Bible study methods portion slash exegesis portion at special hermeneutics. And uh, we'll come, so we'll come back to that. And then we will do what we have described as exegesis. Gave you a brief introduction of it last time. And once you have exegeted a passage, you're in a position to now expound it in whatever setting the Lord uh, presents for you, whether it be from the pulpit or whether it be with your children or discipling one-on-one, whatever the setting may be. So let's take a look at this whole process of exegesis. Just to remind you, we're utilizing the scientific method, and I mentioned the, the scientific method actually came out of this exegetical process, and there's a clear correspondence between the scientific method and what is used in science, at least theoretically anyway, and what we utilize in exegesis, we begin with observation, And because it's so important, we'll spend probably more time talking about observation and giving you more examples. In other words, what do you look for? We'll begin that today. So we'll look at observation in science. The scientist observes the natural realm or the creation. And in exegesis, we observe the biblical text, the concept is the same, it's just the difference of subject matter. And once we've made adequate observations, now we want to try to bring together the things that we have observed, come up with statements, we'll call those generalizations, you form a hypothesis in science, and you Try to reflect what is real in what you are observing. Similarly, in exegesis, we come up initially with a preliminary understanding or interpretation of what the original author intended. As we continue to work through the passage, we make more observations and we refine those conclusions until we're satisfied that we've gone through the process enough times that we're comfortable in understanding the passage and the time frame that we have. Part of the scientific method involves verification, the third stage, or the testing phase. You formulate uh, a test to try to validate and or show that perhaps there's some weaknesses in the hypotheses that you need to refine. So the testing process helps you to do that. Similarly, in exegesis, we want to substantiate the work that we do even after we have uh, become fairly comfortable with the interpretation that we have settled in on. Now, not part of the scientific method, but once scientists have developed 
scientific principles, ideas, concepts. Now in the world we can utilize those. Engineers utilize those scientific principles in their design of structures or machines or other areas, electrical components. So we'll make a design that corresponds to application in exegesis. And we want to separate interpretation from application. You can do them simultaneous, but you really should check your application once you're completing your interpretation. They're different and they're separate. And I think they must go together because of the biblical emphasis. We'll talk about that when we get to that stage. And we could even view it further. This is as far as we will go, but after a design is made, we have a construction phase in the natural world where an engineering design is built. That highway or subdivision is constructed, and now it's usable. We won't get into exposition, but that would be the corresponding analogy in the analogy I'm giving you here. So we begin the process with what I describe as preliminary exegesis. So these are the things that we want to consider before we get into an actual passage itself. Most of what we'll be talking about is we will open up a text and look at uh, at least a paragraph, because by definition, and this is not a biblical definition, this is just literature, the definition of a paragraph is a unit of thought. So if you have a paragraph, whether it's in the Bible or whether it's in a novel or whatever, or even a science textbook, if you have a paragraph, then everything within that paragraph contributes to that unit of thought. So we're going to think in terms of paragraphs. And then we'll break the paragraph down into sentences, and then we'll break down sentences into their component parts. But before we get to that stage, you have to do a few things ahead of time in order to develop the context of that particular passage that you're dealing with. I call that preliminary exegesis. So we start off with what I describe as a book study, where you want to get the whole context of that one individual passage in terms of where does it fit in the total book that you're studying. So if you're studying the book of De- a passage in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, you want to have a little bit of an idea as to what Deuteronomy is all about to get that broader context, at least the circle of context that relates to the whole book itself. And then you can work yourself in all of the circles of context to the specific passage that you are interested in exegeting. So I'm going to give you a process of doing a book study. And and by the way, this is valuable in and of itself to do a book study. I was uh, the Bible teacher at a church for several years. 
and we wanted to have a, a feel for the Old Testament, or at least the elders thought that it would be valuable for the entire congregation to go through the entire Old Testament in kind of broad strokes. So we took book by book, and what I did is I basically, the week before, I would pass out a handout to primarily parents and individuals, basically guiding them through a book study so that they would go through the book themselves or with their families and with their uh, children, so they would adapt it to that level. And then on Sunday, I would give the results of my book study, and we went through the entire Old Testament, and it was extremely valuable. So this is a, a study good in itself, just to get familiar with any book of the Bible. And I would encourage it. In fact, I'd encourage you to do this with every book that uh, we have in, in Scripture. That study was so valuable, people wanted the same thing in the New Testament, so we ended up doing both the Old and the New Testament. So what is involved in doing a book study? And basically, these are the steps that I outlined on these sheets, along with asking some specific questions, helping them to uh, look for certain things, kind of guiding them through the books. So this is a little bit more general and not so specific to particular books. And let me give you an analogy of what we are doing here. Most of the classes that I've taught, when I flash this slide on the screen, people immediately recognize what it is. Those of you, obviously, not from Albuquerque, don't probably realize that this is a map, other than the name is there towards the left-hand bottom portion of the slide there. Uh, this is... This is what it would look like from about 30,000 feet above. And the analogy that I'm drawing is in doing a book study, you want to do a flyover. In fact, some people even call it that. Where you're not concentrating on individual houses or structures or even streets. You're looking at the whole book in broad strokes. You don't want to get bogged down. You don't want to get sidetracked. You don't want to go, go down. This is not the time to go down all the little bunny trails that might be of interest as you're reading through the book. You're just doing a flyover to see the main features of the book. And as you study the map, if, even if you're unfamiliar, one thing that you notice on the right-hand side it looks like something like hills or a mountain range. And, in fact, it is the Sandia Mountains on the right-hand side there. And you can probably tell that the city kind of is bounded on the east by the Sandia Mountains. Another thing that stands out is there's a river. Now, on this slide, I, don't, I only show a portion of the city. The city extends to the west. So, with a flyover, the, the river divides the city into two parts. It's got an east and a west. And, in fact, people in Albuquerque commonly refer to the west side as the other part of the city. And uh, we, I live in the north, what's called the northeast heights. So, it's the northeast part of town. 
And you can also see there's an interstate system that divides the city into quadrants. So you could uh, think in terms of a northeast portion, southeast, etc. And this is what you're looking for in a book study, these major features. You look a little bit closer, there's the river with the arrow, there's the mountains on the east side. And if you look a little bit closer, you see the internet, internet or interstate system there. I-25, I-40 divides the city. And you might also notice, if you're observing, there's what clearly appears to be an airport. And obviously, Albuquerque is an international airport to the south. So at the south port portion of the city, in fact, it serves a little bit of a boundary to the southern portion of the city. There's also an Air Force base and a national laboratory and a whole complex of things to the south that prevent the city from growing in that direction, except on the other side. And the city hasn't expanded there as, as yet. So this kind of just gives you a flight over. You might see a cluster of buildings off to the left there. See the arrow that I've kind of indicated? Most cities have a central portion, and the, the slide here is a little distorted in that there is a west side, and it is somewhat centrally located, but there's a downtown. That's a downtown area. And you might also notice that there seems to be a similar clustering uh, buildings here. It's not as distinct here, but if you're familiar with Albuquerque, you notice that there is something of a, maybe a second downtown. Here in Albuquerque, we call it uptown. Well, the point I'm making is I'm not trying to get you familiar with Albuquerque, and you're welcome to come visit, but the point I'm making is these are the kinds of things, in other words, the major features that stand out. Now, one that I just noticed to the north there, or the top part of the slide, is a large kind of different color of area there. Well, that's that's a, a very expensive private school that owns a lot of prime property there. And in fact, there's a major church in one of the corners there. But that's the kinds of things that you make observations. And as you make more observations, you'll notice other things. And that's what you're looking for in a book study. Don't get bogged down with the individual boulevards, streets, individual houses. You can't even make them out in a flyover. So how do you do this? Well, it's not that complicated. You, you basically do some reading. That's step number one. And by the way, there are two parts to a book study. The first part is an overview of the book itself. We're applying the contextual principle. We're developing the broad context of the book. And you do that by simply reading the book. So you read through the whole book. And if you can, it's best to read through the whole book in one sitting. And virtually every book... Some of them take a little bit longer, like a book of Genesis or the book of Isaiah may take maybe a couple of sittings. But most of the books of the Bible, you can sit down and read through them in one sitting. 
In fact, a book like Ephesians or First Peter, you can pre- probably read in 20, 30 minutes from one chapter to the last chapter in these shorter books. Some of them are only one chapter long, so it's easy to read them. The shorter books, you want to commit to reading them uh, as many times as you need to, three, four, five, ten. The longer books, you may not have the time, but you want to read them at least one or two times, maybe three, maybe four, if you have the time. And again, you're reading for a purpose, and you're reading with a particular thing that you have in mind. You're looking for certain things, and you might do one reading looking for certain things and another reading looking for other things. So basically what you're doing is you're just reading the biblical text. And this, this is enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's uh, also sometimes enlightening because you'll see things that you perhaps never noticed before because you have a different purpose in your, your reading. What you're trying to do is you're trying to gain an initial familiarity with the major content of a book. The big picture. A flyover. Much like that's all that you can get when you fly over a city like the city of, of Albuquerque. And eventually, what you're intending to do is you, if you're working through a book to exegete it, eventually you work through each passage and now you'll have a more detailed picture. But before you get into that stage, you want to look at uh, the whole book to find the context of that particular passage that you want to study. So you want to read it. And one of the things that you're looking for is you're looking for not a detailed outline. You're looking for just the broad strokes of an outline at this stage. The analogy that the city of Albuquerque is divided into two parts. The, the, the river divides it into an east and a west side. Most books of the Bible may only have two divisions. Now, I'll give you these structural units later. But two parts to the book, we call them divisions. And some books may have two, three, four, maybe. There are not too many books of the Bible that have more than five, six, seven divisions. So if you're coming up with seven, eight, ten divisions, some of those divisions you can combine together. You need to look at them in a broader perspective. Uh, so your outline should should include divisions, and if you can observe subdivisions, in other words, dividing your divisions, you may have, let's say you have two, I'll give you an example here, you have two divisions, and maybe that first division has three parts to it. If you can observe those three parts, that's a good thing. Now, how do you decide what is a division and where these divisions break down? Well, sometimes you'll see direct statements in the book itself that give you kind of clues. And just as an example, you might turn to the book of Ezekiel. And here's an example of a book that gives you some uh, direct statements that may be clues to how, well, it is 
a clue in terms of how the author is dividing his book up. Now, these may not be divisions. Some of these, because there's about, I can't remember, seven or eight of them. But some of them may go together. But at least you have these direct statements. And usually I have the students read, but because of our format here, I'm going to just go ahead and read some of these. Notice how the book starts, and I'm going to emphasize what is going on here. Ezekiel begins in verse 1. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And then in verse 2, another little note there, beginning in verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi. And it goes on, and then in verse 4, it begins to describe what he saw. Now, as you start the book, that might not stand out, but as you keep reading through, and you come to chapter 8, and if you remembered verse 1, well, at this point, this quick reading, it may not stand out until you begin to think, maybe after the third time that you see this, you think, hmm, uh, he seems to maybe be grouping his book in in a way that he's describing a time frame, and sometimes he's talking about where he's at. In verse 8, verse 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, and it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house, different location, different time, with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. So now he has another vision. So you may not have noticed it yet. You get to chapter 8. That's chapter 8, chapter 20. And by now, maybe it sticks out, maybe it still doesn't, maybe it won't hit you until maybe you've gotten to chapter 26. Verse 1, now it came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. So now again, he's with the elders, second time. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, and now we have the content of what was revealed to him. Skip to chapter 24, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of the day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And then he goes on and speak a parable. So now he's going to reveal a parable. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole book, but if you... Get to chapter 26, you see something similar, chapter 29, chapter 31, chapter 40. The point I'm making here is those seem to be some direct statements that the author gives you. Those may not be divisions. That's what you'll have to try to determine as you read it maybe more than once. But at least they stick out in such a way that you can see he's arranging the material that he's communicating by giving some chronological notes, and in some cases he also identifies a location uh, where he received the content of either these visions or the word of the Lord that came to him. 
So look for things like that. Now, not every book will have such direct statements as that, but that's an example of where this book seems to be divided by these time frames. Does that make sense? Sometimes you have uh, signposts or connectives. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians, he uses a little phrase, now concerning. So he deals with some issue, some problem, and then he shifts to another issue or another problem. And again, I'm not saying that this is necessarily divisional markers, but these are the kinds of things that you want to look for. And the now concerning phrase, after you've read the passage a few times, or the book a few times, it'll kind of stick out and you'll see, oh, okay, he's transitioning from one idea to another or one issue to another issue. So look for connectives that recur through the book. Other books use other phrases. Others are more subtle. But these are the kinds of things to look for in deciding how a book is arranged by an author. You also may have grammatical indicators. They may not be as obvious, and some of these are harder to to discern. But an example is in 1 Peter, one thing that you might notice, and you can divide 1 Peter into two major parts. You can look at the first 12 verses where grammatically it's essentially describing certain doctrines that Peter is developing. Uh, One prominent doctrine in those first 12 verses. So it's more teaching, if you will. And then you'll notice in verse 13, through the rest of the book, he begins to use far more exhortations. Now, I mention this because this is a a major indicator that you can observe in a lot of the letters. First Peter is a good example. Colossians is another good example. But many of the books of Paul, some of the other letters, you can divide up in a doctrinal section, and then there's more of a exhortational or applicational section where you have more commands or exhortations. And even more specific and more obvious is if you know the Greek text, beginning in uh, verse 13, you're going to see a series of what are called aorist imperatives. These are strong commands in the Greek language that begin in verse 13 and run through the end of the book. So you can divide the book into those two divisions, a doctrinal portion and an applicational or an exhortational section. Uh, And again, not every book has these. Not even every letter will give you those indicators. Every book is unique, but these are just examples of some, some things to look for. Something, something, sometimes you might find a change in literary form. You can notice in, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the first 31 chapters, is written primarily in prose or narrative. 
there's interspersed different literary form within those 31 chapters. But then, beginning in chapter 32 through the end of the book, it's all poetic. So you have a change in literary form. The book of Isaiah is primarily prophetic, but in the center portion of the book, he has a little section in there that's historical. See, it's broken up by literary form. So you have some change, and again, I'm not saying that those are divisional markers, but sometimes uh, they can be divisional markers, and those are the things to look for. Sometimes the subject will change, particularly a lot of narrative where you have one story and now you have another story, so the subject change or the story changes. Book of Exodus is an example where you have preparation for the Exodus, the first four chapters, focusing primarily on Moses. Then you have a time change where it's later in the life of Moses, and you have the narratives pertaining to the plagues and the Exodus itself. And you can run that all the way to chapter 18, 5 through 18. That's the deliverance of the children of Israel. And then the subject changes at Sinai, where God reveals himself, and most of the narrative from there, from 19 to 31, pertains to the giving of the law at Sinai, so you have a subject change. And perhaps you have four divisions in the the book of Exodus. And then in chapter 32 through the end, you have more of a response. How does Israel respond to the law that was just given at Sinai? Fourfold division. Now, different scholars might divide a book in different ways, but there's one suggestion, at least for the the book of Exodus. But you can see some of the same type of changes, subject changes, in, in any book. And if you note that, uh, oftentimes that's an indicator that the division has changed and now you're into a, a totally different section. Let me illustrate it using uh, the book of Genesis. Fairly easy book to divide, and I'm going to use a chart form. But if you're using an outline, you can uh, you can also use like Roman numerals. If if you outline the book of Genesis, I see Genesis breaking down. Even though it's got 50 chapters, it breaks down very nicely into two major divisions. And I'll put it in chart form because it's easier to see. If you're outlining it, then uh, those two divisions now become Roman numeral one and Roman numeral number two. Now, you may not, what you want to do is give a description or a phrase or even a sentence that captures that division. In other words, you want to summarize in a very brief way the content It's descriptive, the content of those divisions. One that is commonly used, and I use it because I think it uh, captures the essence of it. You can give it a different way of describing it, but whatever you come up with, the goal is to try to describe it as briefly as you can 
in a way that is as accurate uh, rep- representing the content as you can. One way that you can divide it is chapters 1 through 11 we could describe as primeval history, in other words, early ancient history. And then chapter 12, you have a, a definite change where you're primarily dealing with personages. 1 through 11 deal with events mainly. And then chapters 12 through 50 deal with individuals and their patriarchs, so we call that patriarchal history. And I like the word history because a lot of liberal scholars like to look at the first 11 chapters as more mythical rather than historical, but I think what we have is primeval history, and then we have patriarchal history. So you can divide the book of Genesis into two major parts. Now, if that is all that you can observe in your reading, let's say you can only read it a couple of times, then that's that's a pretty good uh, observation. That's a pretty good outline of the book of Genesis. Everything else is going to fit within those two divisions. Now, if you read it maybe more than once, you might be able to observe there seem to be four major events in chapters 1 through 11. And there's a focus on creation, there's a focus on the fall, then you have some genealogies between the fall and the flood. So you have four major events dealing with primeval history. Then after the flood, you have two chapters, 10 and 11. Most people might describe it as the Tower of Babel, but I think scattering is a better description because that's essentially what is accomplished. So you have creation, fall, flood, scattering. Four major events. And you can divide the first 11 chapters into those four subdivisions. And I would include chapters 3 through chapter 5, even though it includes the genealogies, under that subdivision that I describe as the fall, because we have the aftermath of the fall and some of the results leading up to the the flood. Does that make sense? And then in chapter 12 through 50, we have four major personages, one of the most important, and we have a lot of text devoted to Abraham. God calls Abraham, makes particular promises to him, so the narrative surrounds itself with this patriarch, very important, father of the nation of Israel. And much of Abraham is awaiting a fulfillment of the promise in the son. And the son is Isaac. He's transitional. There's not a lot of text devoted exclusively to Isaac. There's some overlap in the narrative of Abraham leading up to Isaac. But Isaac basically by himself is only in the last half of chapter 25 and all of 26. So he's more transitional. And then we have Jacob, who is a major focus as well. And at the latter part of Jacob, we have Joseph. And by the way, Isaac overlaps Abraham and overlaps Jacob as well. So there's a little bit of overlap there. But I would begin chapter 26 of the book of Genesis with uh, Jacob. And then we have Joseph who is prominent from chapters 37 through the end. So if you can observe that, that is an excellent 
outline at this stage. And maybe it takes a few more words to capture, but in eight words, that's the essence of the book of Genesis. That's the goal. Don't get bogged down in paragraphs. Don't get bogged down in sentences. In longer books, don't even get bogged down in chapters, because you're going to have sometimes groupings of chapters here. And you're taking a, a broad view, the broad picture, a flyover of the book of, in this case, Genesis. And the next thing you want to do is you want to come up with the main idea. In other words, try to capture in a phrase or a sentence, very brief, no more than a sentence, what does this whole book deal with? And I don't know if you noticed, but going back to Genesis, I might describe it, and I just use one word there, origins. That summarizes everything. You have the origins of all things, creation, origin of evil and sin, the fall, origin of God's dealing with sin in judgment, the flood, origin of languages and nations, the scattering, and then you have the origin of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and you have a lot of origins even within the the narrative of Abraham. So we could describe the whole book of Genesis in one word, origins. In fact, that's the title. The title of the book is Bereshit, which means beginnings or origins in the beginning. That's the title of the book. Now, you won't pick that up from the English, but uh, that's a pretty good summary of the whole book. <clears throat> whole book. Now, if you want to describe it in more detail, you might call it the origins of all things, particularly origin of Israel, something along those lines. So that would be the main idea. So if you're doing Philippians, you want to come up with an idea that captures the essence of the whole book of Philippians or Colossians or whatever book that you may be dealing with. That's the goal. And maybe you want to read it with that view in mind. You've noticed the breakdowns and you've given them titles. And now you can put those two titles together and come up with a descriptive phrase or word or sentence that captures the the uh, content of the whole book. And you've essentially developed the context of that book. Now, a main idea by definition binds all other subjects within it. Now, I'm going to talk about a main idea of a whole book. I'm going to use the same phrase, two words, to describe the main idea of a division. So the main idea of Genesis, I'm going to call it the origin of all things. The main idea of that first division is primeval history, or the origin of early history, origins of early history. And the second division, the main idea of it, it binds everything within it. I may describe that patriarchal history that captures the four patriarchs or the three patriarchs and Joseph. Uh, That captures the essence of everything in that division. And then each of those divisions, 
the main idea with the name of the main character, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. So a main idea binds all other subjects in a phrase or a word or no more than a sentence. It attempts to account for all of the parts. So you don't want to leave out a portion. Oh, this, you know, I I don't know how to fit this in. So somehow you want to include every portion of the book. And when you can do that, then uh, you have a, a more accurate main idea. And and by the way, I will come up with a main idea of each division, a main idea of each sub, subdivision, and on down through all of the structural units that we'll talk about, a main idea that summarizes the entire paragraph. We'll talk about a main idea of a paragraph. In other, in other words, it binds all sentences in that paragraph together. In other words, it summarizes all of the sentences together. What is that unit of thought of the paragraph? I'm calling it a main idea. And it tries to account for all of the words in that paragraph, all of the parts. So that's what I mean by a main idea. You'll also come up with a main idea of just an individual sentence. In other words, every part of the outline, the detailed outline, each part of that tries to summarize everything that it represents in that outline. So look for clues in the book as to how you come up with a description, recurring phrases, recurring words, recurring themes will help you to come up with a main idea. So a book study, you'll do primarily reading. But you're reading with a purpose. You're reading to look for how does this book outline, how does it break down, how does the author himself organize his material. That's the outline. That's what an outline is. And what's the essence of everything that he's saying? What is he trying to communicate? How can I summarize everything that he's saying? I call that a main idea. Another thing to look for, and this may take a separate reading, but if it pops out, in one of your readings before, then fine. But why did this author write? This is also important in developing the context, the purpose of a book. And we'll talk a lot about how do you formulate a purpose and what are you looking for? Sometimes the author himself might even give you a purpose, so you might even look in some books, for a purpose statement. The classic book that gives us a purpose statement is the Gospel of John. Uh, You don't need to turn to it, but I'm going to read John chapter 20, because I think in uh, verses, John 20, verses 30 and 31, I think John gives us His purpose for the book. And if an author gives you the purpose, that's it. That's the purpose. Sometimes it's not as clear as this statement that we have in John 20. John says, many other signs, and if you've read through the book, you have noticed that John calls the miracles, he calls them signs. He uses a particular word. And in fact, well, we'll talk about that later. 
You might ask the question, why did he use the word signs? But anyway, we'll answer that later. Many other signs. So he's referring to many other miracles. Therefore, Jesus also performed. So he's already telling you that he has been selective in the miracles that he has chosen. He's selective. There's many others he could have included in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Selective. And then verse 31, here's the purpose statement. But those have been written. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he gives us the purpose of the book. He's selecting particular miracles. He calls them signs. And he selected them for a particular purpose. He includes them in the book. He could have included others. But he's writing these so that you may be convinced or believe that Jesus Christ is in fact, in fact the Christ, the Messiah, is in fact the Son of God, that's a phrase of deity. You may be convinced, convinced that the Messiah is God himself. And when you believe that, you have eternal life. So a major purpose of the book of John is evangelistic, you might say. But this is just an example of one book that gives you something of a very clear statement concerning the purpose of the book. Others are not as clear, but you can come up with a purpose from the content. And sometimes there are, there's clues that an author might might give you as well. So, a main idea of the uh, book of Genesis, we might say, as a as an example, origin of all things. It kind of summarized some of this. And as you read through the book, you might even come up with a list of many of the things that we have the origin of. One, one, the origin of the universe. The first word in the Hebrew text, Bereshit, takes three words in the English text. In the beginning, we have the beginning of time. Earth is the priority. Uh, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. So we have the origin of the earth, universe, time. Plants, creatures, mankind, sin, judgment, nations, Israel, and on and on. There's your example from Genesis. So what's the purpose of Israel? Now, this may not be immediately evident, but as you think about it, and as you continue to, to work on your overview, you... Uh, may need the next stage, which I'll talk about in a moment, where you look at a little bit of the background, the historical background, and from that you can come to the conclusion that the book of Genesis has the purpose to give Israel their origin, because it's a book of origins, and also it outlines their whole purpose for existence, why they exist as a nation, and he also lays out basically God's plan for them. Uh, all in the book of Genesis. So that's the book, that's a good summary of the purpose of the book of Genesis.
And that's how how you want to work through any given book and come up with a statement something like this. To give Israel their origin, purpose, and plan. That's a purpose statement. So in your book study, you're reading, you're outlining, you're looking for the main content, a summary of it. You're looking at why did the author write this entire book? What, what is its purpose? And any other observations? Just like the flyover of Albuquerque, I noticed that there was a air, airport to the southern portion. It stands out at 30,000 feet. There's this large plot of land to the north. What is that? That kind of stands out. I could have pointed out some other observations that I made. But any observations that kind of stand out, perhaps relating to literary form, recurring phrases, recurring themes, recurring ideas, uh, things that are on this larger scale, not the detail yet. We're going to make detailed observations. We're making broad stroke observations at this stage. And remember, this whole process involves verification, so you want to do some confirming of the work that you've done. And how do you confirm? You uh, can look at other sources. There are several books that are available that people have uh, written that basically do book studies. In fact, a survey of the Old Testament. Those are book studies. The the writer of those books and the publisher, basically they are giving you a survey of each of the books of the Bible. And they're giving, basically, the uh, they'll give you a detailed outline or at least a broader outline than what you have done. But it'll give you an idea of whether you're on the right track. It might give you a statement concerning the main theme or main idea of the book. It'll certainly speak about why, why the author wrote it. And it'll give a lot of other information that'll help you to confirm what you've done. Now, if you have a study Bible, a study Bible oftentimes will have an introduction to all of the books of the Bible. Uh, read through it and look for these elements as well. And it'll give you an idea of whether you're on the right track or not. So you can confirm that way. Uh, commentaries, if you've got individual commentaries to that particular book that you're studying, a commentary will have an introduction to the book. It'll give you all this same information and more. In fact, what it will do is it'll give you more historical background, and that's the second stage of a book study. The second stage of a book study is you want to have a historical context of the book. The overview is going to give you a textual. Remember we talked about the kinds of context. It's going to give you a context or a textual context of the book that you're studying. The historical background will give you a historical context of the book. And most of this you'll do outside of your reading, but some books will give you some of this information. So if you observe just in the casual reading, you might make a note of it, 
but uh, you want to at least, at this stage, go to an outside source. And the same books that I mentioned earlier, surveys of the Old Testament, surveys of the New Testament, introductories to the Old and New Testament introductions, uh, introductions to the commentary, the introduction to books in your your study Bible. This will give you the historical background of these books. And what you're looking for here in background, you want to know who the author is. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about the historical principle. Who wrote this book? That might have a bearing on the book itself. Might be needed in interpreting individual passages. So you want to begin by figuring out who the author is. And if it's not obvious in the book, then you'll be able to find it from some of these other sources outside of the Bible itself. Who's the audience? Basically the same categories we've already looked at. Who's the audience that is addressed in the book? And again, a lot of books are not clear. Paul identifies oftentimes his audience. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, called according to his purposes, whatever, to the church at Philippi or to the churches at Rome or whatever. So the audience. Sometimes the book will give you those clues. But these other background books will not only identify the author, but will give you a little background of who they are, the audience, and the author. What is the occasion of the book? Why was this book written? What were the circumstances of the writing of the book? Again, all of these sources will give you that information. This will be helpful sometimes. The geography, if it's needed, you might need to know where the setting of certain things are taking place. Going back to that Ezekiel example that I gave you concerning divisions, Ezekiel gives us some strange named cities, so where was he at? That might have a bearing on some of the writings that he has and some of the visions that he's revealing here. By the way, this reminds me, Barb asked that I should probably tell you all, the photographs that I'm using, they're all, at, most of them are University of New Mexico. I just kind of have an academic background, and some of you that are from Albuquerque probably are more familiar with that. Uh, just a background, just, I don't know, uh, context, I guess. Uh, this is coming from Albuquerque. <laughs> so you're getting a geographical background of where this teaching is coming from. So geography. Also, any individuals that need consideration. Uh, a book like the book of Ruth, who is Ruth? You know, there might be a little bit more insight in who Moabite people were as you're studying the background to know who Ruth is, where she came from. Uh, whatever background information that's needed for the particular book that you're studying, you want an initial feeling for some of that information because it's going to have a bearing, in some cases more so, other cases not so much, but it'll have some bearing on the material that you'll be studying in detail. So that's essentially a book study.
And here's some of the sources for all that I've been referring to. References in the book. Like I gave you the example, Paul identifies himself, identifies his audience. So references in the book. References in scripture elsewhere. Sometimes the book of Acts will give you the background. In fact, it will give you the background to most of the letters. And particularly the letters of Paul. There are other sources, surveys of the New Testament or Old Testament commentaries. I mentioned all of these. Bible dictionaries. I didn't mention Bible dictionaries. That's a good source for historical background. And encyclopedias. You can include with dictionaries. They're longer articles, more extensive go into more detail, and any historical works that deal with some of these background issues as well. So that's a book study. Any questions on uh, how to do a book study? That first assignment, we'll talk about it later, but that first assignment basically walks you through this process that I just laid out and asks you to uh, make the observations that I described in the description of the book study. Any questions? Pretty clear? Yes. Clear. Very clear. Yep. Ray, are you saying that the assignment is to do a, a book study that has all this, to develop all this? Yes. Okay. We'll go over it. We'll okay. go over it later. But assignment number one essentially asks you to do a book study in the book of Ephesians. And most of the detailed studies that you'll do will be in the book of Ephesians, so you will be developing the context textually, the textual context of the book of Ephesians, and uh um, I don't think I asked you in the assignment to do the background, but you could do that as well if you uh, wanted to go a little bit beyond just the reading portion. I think all I ask you to do is just that first portion. Well, there are a couple of other things. Let me get through some of these and we'll take a break and then we'll get into the details of how to deal with the individual paragraph or, in some cases, a sentence. Another thing you want to give a little bit of consideration, and this is primarily for the students that have access to, to Greek. You might need to deal with the biblical text. So in your reading, you want to, uh, at least when you get into the paragraph stage, you might want to deal with the text itself, the biblical text. And what I mean by that, the biblical text deals with possible variants. And you might spend a little bit of time just skimming through the book to see if there are any variants in a study Bible that are called out. Because you want to be aware of that as you deal with the individual passages and some students like to do a lot of that work ahead of time so they don't have to come back and and uh, 
do that in the individual passages, or you can wait to do that later. But at this stage in the English text, you won't do much of that as well. You just want to be aware of, of some of the notes that you might find. And this is more for those that are actually looking closely. You list the variants, make an initial assessment, identify problems that maybe these variants might present. But like I said, this is more for those that have a background in Greek. That's the text. Oops. The third thing you want to do is now you want to narrow down to the passage that you're studying, the paragraph. And I'm going to say paragraph, but sometimes you might be interested in, in smaller portions in a paragraph. That's fine. But I'm going to give you a process. The, the, the process will be the same if you're dealing with a sentence or just a paragraph. Or maybe you're looking at a whole chapter. Maybe you're doing a broader study for maybe a, uh, a youth group or a children's ministry, and you're not going to drill down to every little word there. Maybe you're preparing to, to teach a Sunday school class of fifth graders or third graders or whatever, and you might deal with a whole chapter at a time. But before you get into that, your detail, your study, your detailed study of that chapter, but I'm going to say paragraph because we're we're going to drill down and we're going to make very careful and detailed observations. Now you want to make some initial observations of that particular portion that you're studying. If it's a paragraph, the paragraph. If it's a sentence, that particular sentence. Uh, if it's a chapter, uh, it's a chapter. And, and again, you're, you're doing a little bit of an overview, but now the overview is not over the whole book. The overview is just to that particular portion that you're studying. And let's say it's a paragraph. And what you might do now is, at this stage, if you were a Greek student, you'd want to translate from Greek into English. But since you're dealing just with the English, one good thing to do is read the paragraph in different translations. Just to get a feel of the different ways that different translations might translate that particular paragraph. So this will take an additional reading of that paragraph a few times, but you're still looking at it in broad strokes. You're, I mean, you're now down to 10,000 feet rather than 30,000 feet, but you're still doing overview thinking. And again, you want to give a lot of thought to context. You want to look at the surrounding context. Remember we talked about circles of context? The specific context is that paragraph. That's what you're going to exegete. So you want to read the paragraphs that precede, at least the paragraph that precedes, but sometimes you want to read more. In fact, if you're in a subdivision of a small book, you may want to read that whole subdivision that precedes the paragraph. And what else is included in the immediate context? Anyone remember? Immediate context includes the paragraph that follows. So at least the 
paragraph that precedes and at least the paragraph that follows. That's the context. And some places, some paragraphs may require that you go beyond that as well. In other words, more than one paragraph preceding and more than one paragraph following. And it's always good to be able to put a passage within its division, at least. So context. You want to be aware of genre, because this will come into play as well. And it's good to make sure. And if the whole book is of one genre, then you won't need to do this very often, but that might come into play. And just any other observations that you make on that broad strokes that we're talking about? Uh, one thing that I will emphasize over and over, if you're dealing with a paragraph, you want to be able to identify all of the sentences within that paragraph. How many sentences are there? Now, sometimes, particularly in Ephesians, one paragraph may just be one sentence. One sentence may make up an entire paragraph. In fact, there are some sentences in the book of Ephesians that we break them down into more than one paragraph. <laughs> Particularly that first major sentence in Ephesians beginning in uh, verse 3. That sentence in the Greek text runs all the way through verse 14, and you can divide that into three parts. So those are the kinds of things that you're making observations on. How many sentences, this is one thing that you want to do, is how many sentences are in that paragraph. Be able to identify them. That's pretty easy. You can identify a sentence. Begins with a capital letter, ends in a period or question mark. Complete sentence. How many are there in that paragraph? You might make other observations as well. You might think of, uh, in other words, what is the purpose of this whole paragraph? You might come up with a statement of initially, what does this whole paragraph seem to be dealing with? In other words, what's the main idea of this whole paragraph? How can I summarize in my own words this entire paragraph? Make sense? Those kinds of broad stroke observations that you want to make at this point. And I've got a, the basic subject, the sentences, main idea. I went over most of these already. Purpose. Um, you might even consider atmosphere. We'll talk more about atmosphere. I'll tell you what that's all about. It's not as important as these first four items, but sometimes it'll come into play. And any other issues, there might be a problem. There might be problems or issues that this paragraph raises. Maybe theological, maybe it's, maybe it's an apologetic issue, or maybe it's a doctrinal issue of some sort. Uh, whatever issues, you want to be able to observe these up front, because you're going to want to solve some of these problems that maybe this paragraph raises. So that's preliminary exegesis.
It's about time to take a break, but before we do, anything come to mind that was not clear, at least? You have a pretty good idea of what we're talking about here? Preliminary exegesis? Yeah, I think I'm pretty good on, on what uh, you've been talking about. It's just now i got to go ahead and do it. Yeah, exactly. Now's yeah. the practice part. Yeah. Yes. Andrea, does that make sense? Yes, yes. Good, because you're pretty new. This will be very valuable for you. Okay. Yeah, don't hesitate to ask. Anyone else? Mark? Steve? Uh, no questions right now. Okay. Probably it'd be a good time right after we get back. Let's take like a seven... No more than 10 minute break and then we'll come back or about 10 minutes and we will, uh, I think it'd be a good time to go over the first assignment and then we'll go from there. In this hour, we want to begin looking at the principle of observation. This will be very important, so we're going to spend a lot of time on it, give you lots of detail, and you want to concentrate on, in this portion, making observations. You're not coming to conclusions. We'll do that later. We're just going to make observations. In other words, what do I see? And that question is, what do I see in the text that I am observing? You're not answering the question, what does it mean? You're answering the question, what do I see? In other words, what is there? What is the text? What is it saying? Or what is contained in the text? So, what is observation? Observation is taking notice, particularly of the details that you find in a text. And we could define observation as being mentally aware of what is in the text or what one sees in the text. It'll involve perception. It's not just looking at words and repeating back in your mind those words, but beginning to think in terms of perception. I think Jesus is kind of speaking of the same thing in Matthew thirteen sixteen when he says, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Now, He's not distinguishing the disciples from people that are blind physically, but he's distinguishing them because they have perception. In other words, they have spiritual eyes. They're they're looking with a purpose. They're looking in terms of not just the physical. They're they're looking beyond just the, the sentences and the words and the commas and all of the elements of of language. So he says, blessed are your eyes because they see. In other words, you are making 
significant observations. You're taking notice of what's going on, and similarly your ears because they hear. So that's that's what we're talking about here. The goal of everything that we'll be doing in observation is to become saturated with the particulars of the passage. To become saturated with the particular particulars of any given text, whether it be a sentence or whether it be a paragraph, whatever you're studying, you want to spend a lot of time making sure you are aware of all of the particulars in there. Now, I'm going to illustrate it and show you what I mean. It's going to include more than just words. It's going to include, in some cases, punctuation. It's going to include certainly words, but phrases. And it's going to include, in some cases, the order of phrases. But it's to become saturated with the particulars of the passage. And what you are doing, the goal here is to become so saturated that now you have data. You've made observations. Now that data, those observations, now you're in a position to be able to ask the next question. What does it mean? So your observations are the raw materials, if you will, or the data for the next stage for interpretation. Now, I'll remind you again, in actual practice, you'll go back and forth. You'll go back and forth from observation, interpretation, back and forth. For now, we're going to separate them out so that you understand the difference and that you don't mix them up. And in distinguishing them, then you will make more accurate and more precise observations. So let's illustrate it, first of all. Let's illustrate it from different realms in the world in which we live in. For example, a scientist, obviously, we've been using that analogy, a science, scientist cannot form a hypothesis unless he has made accurate and adequate observations. And he has to make an abundance of them. And sometimes he has to go back. He may make an observation that spurs a thought, and then he keeps making observations, and he may go back and make the same observation again. So he cannot form a hypothesis until he makes adequate observations. Now, he may form a hypothesis, but it may not be a very good one. In fact, it probably not a very good one. So this is the beginning of the scientific endeavor. From uh, law enforcement or criminology, a detective, they make observations in order to build a case. The better observations they make and the more observations they're able to do, uh, the better the case that they can make in a court of law. And sometimes there just are not enough clues to solve a case, but in some cases there's an abundance of clues. So they gather all that data, and now they're building a case, and if they have sufficient data and a solid enough case, then they can take it to court and utilize it in a criminal case. So a detective can't function without observations. I'm an engineer, that's my background, and before we 
come up with any design, whether it be in civil engineering or in any other area of engineering, but particularly civil engineering, we can't create a design until we know the setting of that highway or the location and all of the existing data that is there. In other words, what is there that we have to deal with before we even begin the process of building a highway through that forest or village or whatever the case may be. So the engineer has to make all those observations ahead of time before he can come up with a design. So a lot of studies are are started, soil analysis, uh, surveys, etc., before you can even begin to make a design. Those are like observations before you begin the actual process. You don't want to go to a doctor that uh, just kind of looks at you and doesn't make any observations to try to diagnose an internal problem that you're having. You want him to be thorough. You want him to be careful. You want him to run tests. Those tests are observations. He's trying to figure out what may be causing this problem. He may have some initial ideas but uh, he may not know until he gets the results of the test back. Those are like observations. He cannot diagnose your situation without those observations. So uh, that hopefully kind of encourages you to, to, to make careful observations and illustrates the importance of them. And to the extent of the observations that you make to that extent will be the accuracy of the conclusions that you come to or the interpretations that you make. Now, I'm going to give you kind of a silly example of how sometimes we read a text, and in reading a text, if we're not careful, and there's several things I want to illustrate by using this example. If we're not careful, we could come up with a Robin Hood doctrine from a particular passage. I'm not going to change any of the words. I'm going to read every word in this sentence in a biblical passage. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it inaccurately. And I'm going to read it as if I have made bad observations. And from those bad observations, I can come up with a Robin Hood doctrine. So it's a little silly, but let me try to illustrate it. He who steals must steal. It's kind of what Robin Hood did, right? He stole from the rich. So he who steals must steal. No longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hand, with his own hands, what is good. Stealing is labor. Stealing is a good thing in this scenario that I'm painting here. But Robin Hood had a purpose for his stealing. He stole so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Okay, I've got every word. From Ephesians 4:28, but because of the way I read it, 
the way I read it, I missed a lot of things. I didn't make observations. And does someone want to come up with one of the major observations that I missed or that I did not make in in the reading that I just gave you? Well, you start off with he who steals must steal as if that is a complete thought. Uh, whereas the real complete thought is he who steals must steal no longer. Okay, that's 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 the main thing. So what I didn't observe is a semicolon after no longer, and I misobserved or I put a comma at least after the second or the steal there. You steals must steal comma. There's no comma there. Sometimes we put things into a text that are not there. And that's exactly what I did in this misreading of it. And I failed to observe the semicolon. And with the semicolon, it tells us where to break. And when you break there, then it says the very opposite of what I read. You see that? So by failing to observe something and to see something that is not there, I totally changed the meaning of the passage. And not only that, but I was not careful in reading part of the other portion of it because it gives an alternative to stealing. But I kind of brushed over that because I didn't make very many observations there and the observations were very poor. I jumped to the purpose of stealing, which is not contained in the passage at all. But this is what I'm illustrating here is this is sometimes the way we read a passage. We miss things that are there. Sometimes we insert things that are not there, and when we do that, oftentimes we can come up with the very opposite of what a passage might be trying to communicate. You see what it is, how it illustrates that there? So there's no such thing as a Robin Hood doctrine, and Ephesians 4.28 does not support such a thought. Now, here's a real passage and you may have encountered this as well. Oftentimes, Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, and sometimes if I have time, I'll engage them and talk to them. I, I set the ground rules ahead of time. I'm not going to tell you all about that. But on one occasion, they came, and they were pushing some of their literature, and they went over some of the pages, and I looked at them, and they read this doctrine that the earth will never be destroyed. They see a paradise in the future without a destruction. In other words, they're almost looking at a heavenly place without, without what God talks about in terms of judgment. And they base it on Genesis 8.21. And they read it. The Lord said to him himself, and they get the context. They're talking about the Genesis flood, but um, they misread the passage. And let me show you how they do that and what went wrong in the conversation. The Lord said to himself, this is a real situation. This actually happened with uh, a couple of elders in the, uh, or no, these were Jehovah's Witnesses, not Mormons. Uh, the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Okay, that's pretty clear. God's never going to curse the ground on account of man. 
For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing. He's never going to do that again. And it was interesting, they left off the last phrase, which changes the meaning entirely. And when I pointed it out, it was almost as if they'd never seen the last phrase of the sentence that says, as I have done, and I asked them, well, what does that mean, as I have as I have done? What What is God saying in that passage? And it kind of threw them off their little spiel, and they, they got, you know, flummoxed and couldn't answer. Um, and then I went on to explain, and I said, well, this changes the meaning that you try to convey here. You emphasize that God will never curse the ground again, and you emphasize it again when it says, I will never again destroy every living thing. But notice he's specifying how he's going to do it. He's not saying that he's never absolutely going to destroy the earth. He is saying, as I have done in the context of the Genesis flood, there's never going to be another Genesis flood, is what this passage is teaching. So, just an example of, I'm sure they had presented this since they had been going down the street. They, I don't know, they'd probably presented it five or six times already, and maybe more, and uh, it was as if they didn't even see that last phrase, and if they had seen it, they had not observed the significance of it to the passage. But the point I'm making is we make these kinds of mistakes as well. We may not read every word, every phrase, and sometimes if you leave off a key phrase, as this one is in this context, you can come up with a different meaning of the text. Now, I'm going to give you a little quiz here, and this is part of our interactive time. Let's see how this works out. I'm going to give you a phrase, and I'm going to give you 20 seconds to count all of the F's in this phrase. I don't know, is it a sentence? I don't have a period in there, so it's probably just a series of phrases here. Everybody ready? Everybody understand? You're going to count the number of F's. And I'm going to give you 20 seconds. Ready? Are you saying X or F? F as in uh, Friday. As in Foxtrot? Okay. Yeah, Foxtrot. Everybody ready? Okay, go. Okay, stop. How many F's? I counted three. I counted counted three. Three, all right. Three? Yep, three. So there's got to be something. Probably more. I got six. Oh, Barb's good. (laughs) Barb's a good observer. Look at it more carefully. One, two, All of you missed, all oh, of you missed, yeah. we missed the ofs. Loves, oh, oh, yeah. Three ofs, yeah. yeah. Four ofs. Yep. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. four of them. Uh, this just illustrates 
you know, mm-hmm. our our eyes sometimes just don't see things. That's why we have to concentrate when we observe, because it's very easy. Now, I put you under a little bit of pressure there by just giving you a time frame, but I think you all probably read it a couple of times, right? I don't know how many times you read it, and you were looking for something particular, and yet you still missed the ofs. Interesting. Uh, this is what happens. Uh, this is what happens sometimes when we open up a passage and, you know, our minds sometimes wander in the middle of what we're doing or we're distracted or we're just not careful. But it just illustrates that we need to not only concentrate but focus because it's easy to, to miss details. I mean, they're clearly there. They're not in any hidden way. They're, they're all there. Hey, Ray, can I make another observation? Yes. Because it's written in all caps, it makes it more difficult to read. Yeah. You know, I worked in a nuclear plant with procedures, and that was something we found. If you use too many capital letters, people had trouble reading it. Yeah. But it's still clear. I mean, there's no obscurity there, right? It's just, sure. Sure. It's just a little harder to read. Yeah, this is just what happens. Sometimes when we'll read a biblical text. Uh, here's hey, another. You, go ahead. I was just going to say this, Mark. You, you, you picked a word where the F doesn't sound like an F. You tricked us. I didn't trick you. <laughs> this is no trick. <laughs> it's just an illustration of what happens to us. And, and it happens to me. I'm not, I'm not saying. And, and by the way, you guys, are not any different than any other class that I've had. Most of them will pick up two or three, some of them four. Uh, Barb's been through this before, so I think... Yes, I had I had previous yeah. experience. Yeah, so she was able to, to know the trick here. But uh, the point I'm making is this is what happens to us, and that's why we need to read with perception and thought and... Uh, emphasize making observations. Uh, here's another illustration where just one little thing changes the meaning, and if you miss it, you'll have a different meaning. Notice here. Woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. And notice we can... We don't change any letter, any word. We simply change the comma. Woman, same comma, same place, without her comma, man is nothing. Everything's the same. The only thing that's different is the comma. So we're talking about making observation, and in terms of the English text, we're making observations sometimes on punctuation. Even punctuation, sometimes in the English text at least, can change the whole meaning. Now, that's not so much the case in Greek and Hebrew because meaning is conveyed through endings more so than through punctuation. English is more dependent on punctuation. Does that make sense? See how how the, the meaning is totally changed. No different word. The order is identical. 
The only thing that changes is just one position of one comma. So, observation is very different. Here's another example. Now, this refers to King Charles. And notice the difference here. Similar to the last one in terms of the structural change. Charles I walked and talked half an hour after his head was cut off. Well, that almost, ooh, how do you do that? He's like a chicken. Charles I walked and talked half an hour after his head was cut off. Charles I walked and talked, period, after and half after an hour, or let's see, half an hour after, comma, his head was cut off. Totally different meaning. Now there's, again, what's the difference? Punctuation. So you have to observe in the English, Sometimes punctuation is very, very important. Now, most of the time we're making observation on the words. I'm just illustrating it here that it involves not just the words, but sometimes other elements of the passage as well. Now, I don't know if this is going to work, but I uh, usually in a live class I pass out And I'm trying to find it here. I pass out a photograph. Is that clear on your screen there? And yes. these, are, these are real people. In fact, these used to be my neighbors. And obviously they posed for this photograph for me. But it's an exam or a quiz on observation. And just to start off, uh, let me give you a little of the context. The, the man, the man is the husband and the wife is sitting with him on the couch. The older son is David and the daughter is in fact Debbie. She does have a garment. There are magazines, if you can't quite tell, on the, the little table there. And uh, the questions are the following. Uh, the Jones family own a TV set. True or false? Probably true. Okay. Johnny is doing his homework while he is watching TV. True or false? False. False. Okay. Uh, Johnny's father is a stockbroker, or David's father is a stockbroker. I'm sorry. It should have be, been David. Can't tell. He's reading the Wall Street Journal, but... <laughs> Can't tell. The screen is showing a scene from a Western. False. Uh, false. 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 Okay, Mrs. Jones, uh, or uh, I'm mixing up two two photographs here. Mrs. Jones is knitting a sweater. 
But look at she's knitting, she's holding some uh, a garment. Who is Miss? I'm sorry. Is is this family Jones family? Yes. Bunt. It says Bunt family on the caption. Oh, yeah, that I'm, I'm sorry, Bunt family. Bunt family. Okay. Yeah, I'm messing up. I'm reading I from it. I can't, I can't tell. It doesn't look like a sweater. Can't tell. All right. The Bunt family subscribes to Time, Life, and Fortune. I can see Time and U.S. News. Can't tell about the others. Yeah. Unknown. Unknown. Jones family consists, or the Bunt family consists of Mr. and Mrs. Bunt and Johnny. Oh, who's Johnny? David and Debbie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, could be true, but we don't know if those other children are. Okay, the Bunt family has a pet. Little white dog. Yeah. Yeah, appears I'll say to, true. Appears to be true. Okay. All of them. Let's see. No. Let's see. The last last one here. Mr. Bunt is wearing a cap. True. He's wearing true. a Actually, every single one of them. This is a quiz, not simply to observe what's in the photograph, but you needed to observe how the questions were phrased. Every one of them cannot be determined except the last one. All of the others, the Bunt family owns a TV. Well, yeah. could be rented. Could be borrowed. Could be stolen. Yeah, cannot be determined. David is doing his homework while he watches TV. Well, can't that one can't be determined either. Uh, uh, David's father is a stockbroker. Well, just because he's reading the. Uh, what was it? The Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. That doesn't mean that he's, a, in fact, he was a plumber, so it cannot be determined. Uh, I had another question in there. There are four people in the room. You can't tell. The room's bigger yeah. than what you see in the picture. Yeah, that's another one. And actually, there were six because I took the photograph. But anyway, the point being, if you read through all of the questions, every one of them cannot be determined, but it cannot be determined because of the way that it's phrased. When I say they are subscribed to U.S. News and Time and the other magazine, that it cannot be determined. Again, they could have purchased them, you know, just off the shelf without subscribing. So I use the word subscribe in the question, cannot be determined. Or again, they might have uh, taken them off the shelves and didn't pay for them, whatever. So, it's just a little quiz. It doesn't work as well as it does when I have a live class, but just an example of observation. Okay, so what do we observe? We start with a passage. What do I begin with? You know, what do I, what am I looking for? And I'm going to give you a bunch of categories, 
And then we'll come back when we do interpretation and we'll deal with all of these categories and we'll do particular studies in terms of all of these categories that we're going to break down. And I'll give you lots of examples. In fact, I, I want to kind of overwhelm you even with the possibility of things that you'll be wanting to observe as you get it into a passage. So in making observations, we begin with terms. Terms are a given word used in a given context. So you're dealing with the terms that exist in that particular paragraph that you're studying. And that's kind of obvious, but there's several things that you want to do in, in your observation of terms. Remember, we're taking notice of what's there. And also, you want to think in terms of, you may not want to spend the same amount of time making the observations on every single term. In other words, I'm not going to spend five minutes on every single term. Some terms I'm going to make more observations on than others. I'm going to spend more time in some areas than in others. So we're applying the linguistic principle when we go into observation. We've applied the contextual principle when we were looking at the book study. We also utilized the historical principle. Now we're focusing in on the linguistic principle and words themselves. Words are the basic building blocks of language. They're the basic units of language. So we want to make observation on terms. And we're not talking about meaning yet. We're just taking note. We're gathering data so that later on, now within these contexts, these terms fall within this context. Now we're going to come up with meaning later on. So we're going to make observations on terms. And there's different types of terms. There are terms that are more routine. We call those routine terms. Either the meaning are obvious or they're not that impactful in terms of the meaning. Sometimes they are the same word. Uh, some of these may be like articles. Articles sometimes can be important, but not always. Uh, they're pretty frequent and they're pretty common. And we would look at them more as routine. The ones that we want to devote more time to are those that we describe as non-routine terms. We want to give more consideration to them. In fact, as we're observing terms, we want to, to some extent, even prioritize the terms that are contained in the passage that we're dealing with. We want to give the most time to and consideration to those words that perhaps we don't understand. In other words, we don't know the meaning of that word. That would be a non-routine term. Or there's a term in there that occurs maybe three times. Maybe the author is calling our attention that this is a word that, he, that is very important in this context. That would be a non-routine term. So we want to give more consideration to it and look at the context and the surrounding words of that non-routine term. 
Or it might be a term that you need to do a word study on. In fact, if you don't understand the meaning of that word, that's one that you want to identify as a candidate for a word study as you're looking in there. So you might even jot that down. This is a term that I want to do further study, maybe even a, a word study. So you're kind of prioritizing where are you going to spend your time in terms of studying the, the particular words in this passage. You can't look at every single one of them at the same level. In fact, it's unfruitful to do that. So you want to kind of prioritize the terms. You want to identify, particularly if there are literal terms, and distinguish that from non-literal literal terms. If there are non-literal terms in there, you want to make sure that you're aware of that because the author may be using non-literal language or he's using imagery or he's uh, trying to make the the meaning more vivid or whatever he's doing with those non-literal terms. So you want to give consideration to whether the term is is literal. In other words, the primary meaning is the obvious everyday usage of the word or if it's got a, ne a secondary meaning, a non-literal meaning. So you want to distinguish. So these are kind of what you want to focus on when you're making observations of terms, prioritizing. Another thing you want to do with terms is you want to identify grammatical categories because this is part of how language works. A word in one context can be used in a different way, the identical same word in a different context in terms of its grammatical usage. So what we're dealing with here are just the basic grammatical categories. Identifying, and again, if you, you're looking at some of the priority terms, you're looking for nouns, and if it's more important to be able to identify it as a noun or a pronoun, you might need to Linked together, you're dealing with a series of pronouns here. You need to go back to the primary noun that that pro pronoun refers to. You're just, you're making these observations. You're saturating yourself with the data of the text. Similarly with verbs and partial verbal ideas called participles, infinitives. These are just grammatical, these are the basic grammatical categories. And by the way, other languages use these same grammatical categories. We think in terms of objects or nouns. We think in terms of verbs, and we describe them in sentences, actions, verbs. We utilize what are called verbal adjectives. That's a participle. We utilize infinitives, etc. So you want to be able to observe how that word is functioning in that particular sentence. We identify adjectives. We need to know what they do, how they function. And again, a word can <clears throat> can be used as an adjective or it can be used as a uh, another category. Adverbs describe verbs. Adjectives describe nouns. And these are the basic grammatical categories. There's others, but these are the most important ones. So you want to be able to identify how words are functioning, not just the words themselves. Now, let me give you a little bit of a 
guess a, an illustration personally. I, I think I've already mentioned. For me, grammar was just kind of this black box. I, I had no idea how words functioned, how sentences functioned. I did not have a feel for grammar. I think it came, well, I know it came as a result of when I was growing up, my mom, well-meaning, put me in this particular school. We were raised Roman Catholic, and it was a Catholic school. And it had a good reputation, and I don't know if it just had a poor English teacher or whether the school was weak in that area, but generally private schools are pretty strong, but or maybe it was just all me, I don't know, but whatever the case was, was uh, I just didn't learn how to read by the time that the normal students were, were reading. And at that time, I don't know what it is today, but back then, by the end of the third grade, you should be able to read at least, you know, some, some simple sentences, maybe not complex stuff, but you ought to be able to read, and I could not read hardly any, or I can read anything. And at the end of the school year, you know, my mom, you know, she was asking questions and I can't remember the exact circumstance, but she, I think she had me read something pretty simple or something. I couldn't do it. And then she started probing and asking and, you know, you mean you can't read? And, and, and I said, well, no. Uh, so she asked a friend, her best friend was a public school teacher. And she asked her, well, shouldn't he be reading by now? And she said, oh, yeah, by the end of third grade, he should uh, at least be reading at this level. And and I was way, way off of that level. So my mom yanked me out of that school, and she registered me in, in the public school, which supposedly was not as good as the Catholic one. But she had confidence in that friend of hers. That was her best friend, and that was the advice that she gave. And they were going to hold me back a whole year because I was so far behind. My mom talked that friend into tutoring me over the summer, and the public school agreed, because of her influence, agreed to pass me on condition. But I think from that experience, I, I don't think I ever caught up. I never felt confident either in English or in reading or in, and certainly not grammar. I never picked up grammar. Now, I did well in science and math and other non-humanitarian subjects. So the humanities were a weakness in my background and math and science were strong points. So went on and got an engineering degree because you don't have to read that much and you don't have to deal with English that much. So uh, I always felt that weakness until I became a believer and began to recognize the need. And I was, I think I mentioned I was thrust into ministry pretty early and saw a need to get into an understanding of the biblical text very early. So I had an obstacle to overcome. Now, I only mention that is because most people, a lot of people like you all are older and you're out of school and it's been a long time since you've looked at grammar and you haven't thought about grammatical categories. But in order to understand a biblical text, we have to kind of refresh ourselves 
and go back and remind ourselves of some of these grammatical categories, and particularly as we begin to interpret, we're going to talk some more about these things. And just simply reading the biblical text, it's helpful to have uh, a little background. I didn't learn English grammar until I studied Greek. And in order to understand Greek, when they're talking about participles, what is a participle? I What I did is I bought, uh, I don't know, an eighth grade English grammar that defined all of these terms and explained what grammar was all about. So I'd look it up in the English grammar to find out what a participle was so that I might be able to understand what they were talking about concerning a Greek participle and infinitive, etc. But I just mentioned that if you're struggling in the same way that I struggled, uh, be encouraged. You can overcome it. Uh, I feel somewhat more comfortable, at least. I don't think that uh, I'll ever become an expert in these areas, but I think I do a decent job of exegesis, but I had to overcome that background in order to be able to understand some of these even basic grammatical categories. So I don't know where you all are, but this is going to be an important area, and we're going to stress it, and if you have a need to maybe brush up, uh, this is something that you may want to to uh, commit to. Uh, an example of how the same word is used in a different sense, the same word can have a different meaning, sometimes even in the same sentence. I've come up with this kind of this silly sentence using the word trunk, as I've highlighted it there. So when you're observing terms, you're eventually going to want to think in terms of what do these terms mean. And I give this example just because just because a word is used in the same sentence more than one time doesn't necessarily mean that it has the same meaning. In fact, every usage of every term within its particular context has the author's intended meaning for that particular word, and it may be different. And here's an example of that. The sentence, pack the trunk, and I'm giving you the context, the trunk in the attic. So now in your mind, you have a mental picture of a square box, probably covered with dust. may have antiques inside of it. It's up in the attic. But that trunk is different from the next one. Pack the trunk in the attic. Put it in the trunk of the car. The word trunk in the second usage. Now you have a different mental image of the trunk, the word trunk, and it's very different from the first one. So pack the trunk in the attic and put it into the trunk of the car so we can drive to Africa and park next to the tree, a tree with a large trunk. Third usage, third different meaning, totally different sense. And at this point, you know that it has to do with a, a tree, 
fact, a large tree has a trunk, different mental picture. In order to watch the animal with a large trunk, fourth usage, fourth different meaning. So words change depending on how the author is using those words. Now, I've already mentioned when we were talking about the linguistic principle, not every word has this wide a range of meaning, but here's one word in one sentence, four different meanings, because this word has a wide range of meaning. So that is an illustration of how meaning changes. The next illustration is how meaning changes depending on how it's used in terms of um, the grammatical categories. Here's a sentence, or a phrase at least. He was cutting the grass. That meaning, and... Notice I'm going to use almost the same words with a few differences here. That has a particular meaning, that he was cutting the grass. So you have an image of your mind of someone with a lawnmower or some way of cutting grass. The cutting of the grass took time. Now you have a different idea in your mind for the word cutting. Uh, now it's not used exactly in that verbal sense, but it's used more in a participial sense, different category. Same word, but in English, different meaning. And now we have, he made a cutting comment. Totally different meaning, totally different grammatical category, and different context. Same word, yet different meaning. So these are the kinds of things that you want to make observations of. How are words used in their particular context? We're just dealing with terms right now. Here's differences in just prepositions. And almost the same words with a few differences. He ate supper, and I'm highlighting the word with. He ate supper with his wife. This is different from he ate supper with a fork. Same preposition, but uh, he wasn't holding the fork in the same way. He may have been holding the hands of his wife. He ate supper with his wife. They're, you know, it's more relational. The with has more of a relational idea there. Here it has more of a, an instrumental. In other words, he ate supper with the instrument of a fork. He didn't use his wife to get the food into his mouth, but he used the fork to get the food into his mouth. And he didn't treat the fork in the same way that he treated the wife. So the with is different. Same preposition. He ate supper with delight. The third different way that it's used. Same preposition, but now because of a different word, 
with the wife, it's more relational. With the fork, it's more <clears throat> instrumental. Uh, with the light, has more the idea of kind of emotion, I guess you could say. You'd suffer with some emotion. There might have been emotion with the wife, but this is a different emotion. And maybe he had the light when he ate supper with his wife, but without the wife, maybe there was not the same, same context. So, words, even identical words, even prepositions, <clears throat> have different meaning depending how the author uses them. But in each of these, we have a context. We have following words that specify the meaning of the word with. Does that make sense? See what we're doing here? We're making observation on terms. Now, we talked about grammatical categories. Also, words have what we describe as inflection. Now, English is not a highly inflectional language as Greek and Hebrew. In fact, you spend all of first year Greek and Hebrew studying all these different ways that the endings of a word, the prefixes of the word, or the changes within the word, how all of that affects meaning and changes the whole idea of what's being conveyed. We call that inflection. The two major categories, nouns and verbs. Nouns are inflected. Now, in English, when we have nouns and they're inflected by number, we add a suffix. If I refer to a book, the number is singular. If I add an S to it, books, I've changed the inflection, and there's a difference between Book singular and book plural with an S on it. So also with other um, languages as well, Greek and Hebrew, they, they change number in different ways depending on uh, the primarily endings of words as well. <clears throat> you probably heard in, in Hebrew, nouns are pluralized with an im ending. I even mentioned it in one of our other sessions. I, I referred to Elohim, the name for God, when I was talking about Genesis 1-1. The im makes it plural. El is kind of the broad general term for God. Elohim pluralizes God. Nouns can be inflected for gender. Now, in English, that doesn't play as big a role as it does in Greek and Hebrew, but in some cases, it may come into play. And this is especially important in Greek. Nouns are inflected for case, and we won't get into all the details of that, but I'm just kind of illustrating here how even though you have a noun, uh, we can change the meaning by simply adding certain things to them. Verbs, now we use verbs in different tenses, and we indicate that in different ways. So a tense of a verb is just as important in English as it is in 
sometimes as evident in English as it is in the Greek and the Hebrew language. Verbs are also inflected for person. and voice, and also numbers. And you have, in the Greek and Hebrew, you have concord between uh, subjects and sentences. So these are just areas and examples of things that we want to observe. To illustrate a little of that again, in another, or also verbs are inflected for mood. I forget about that. So we have mood. So another example of another sentence, another one that I made up, showing the idea of running and the variety of ways that that word can be used in even the same sentence. I don't even complete the sentence there. But the word runner, as you can see there, when the runner that is used as a noun and it's the subject of a subordinate clause there. When the runner with the running nose, different usage there. It's a participial usage, running nose. Totally different mental image as well. When you think of the runner, you're thinking of somebody in a, in jogging shorts and maybe a t-shirt, tennis shoes, going along the path there. But the nose doesn't have running shoes on, yet it's running also. Different mental picture. The runner with a no running nose noticed that his stopwatch stopped running, a different kind of running. Now, an inanimate object doesn't have running shorts on either. He stopped so that when the runner with the running nose noticed that his stopwatch had stopped running, he stopped running, running the marathon and sat down on the riverbank next to the car with the engine running, and another kind of running, again participial but different meaning, uh, to cool his feet in the running water, another running, different from the engine running and different from the nose running, different from the stopwatch running. And to let his mind run wild. So now his mind has running shorts on and tennis shoes, right? Well, no, because of the context. Because of the word mind. So, just an illustration. Uh, same idea. Almost the same word, but we're inflecting that word. We're adding an ing in one case and an, an additional n. Or we're adding an n-e-r, runner, as opposed to run, kind of the basic idea. So we're inflecting that word. And in each inflection, we're changing the meaning, and in some cases, very radically. And just so you identify what we're doing here, when the runner, noun, with the running, participial running, knows, notice that his stopwatch stopped running. Now we're talking about a verb. He stopped running, same, same uh, verbal category, but still it's a different meaning. 
He stopped running the marathon and sat down on the riverbank next to the car with the engine running. That's participial. And it's a different participial meaning than the nose running and also the water running is a different one, even though the identical same word with the same inflection. And then the last one, uh, to let his mind run, that's, that's an infinitive. To run, you have to include the to there. Actually, to let run is the infinitive there. See how inflection comes into play and changes the idea and the meaning? Sometimes the same word. Okay, um, this is probably a good place to come up with uh, an example. And let's take some time. And we want to be a little interactive here as well. A real passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 14. Let's use this as an exercise on observation. Now, let me kind of go beyond this passage. Let's do a little bit of a preliminary exegesis. So, here's a passage in Matthew 5, 13 through 14 that we want to do a little bit of study of. And... I don't have all of verse 14 on, but we don't need it. I just want it to be big enough so you can see it on the slide there. But before we get into the passage, let me let me ask you some some questions. Let's let's assume that we have already done a book study on the Gospel of Matthew, and maybe some of you have had some teaching on it, or maybe you're a little familiar with the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if not, um, uh, that's okay. Uh, I'll kind of give you an idea there. If you've done a book study or if you have an idea of what Matthew is all about, uh, what would you say might be a major theme of the whole book of Matthew or what is the main content, the main idea of the book of Matthew? Can anyone maybe summarize that from perhaps the background that you have? You probably haven't done a book study on it, but um, any insight on that? Any of you know what the Gospel of Matthew, can you come up with a big idea? Present the Messiah as king. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. Obviously, you've had some teaching on it or some study at least. Yeah, I think Matthew, the main theme is Jesus Christ is presented as king. Uh, he's the Messiah king of the Old Testament. And you have an idea of the audience. Each gospel has a different main idea. Matthew's Jesus is portrayed as that messianic king that's prophesied in the Old Testament. Mark has a different theme, different main idea. Luke different, John different. Matthew, obviously, we just stated it. Uh, can somebody come up with the audience for Matthew? Jews. Jewish people, very good. It's predominantly a Jewish audience who are looking 
for the Messiah or were anticipating or waiting for the Messiah, Matthew is telling them Jesus is that fulfillment of those prophecies that predicted that a Messiah would come. Very, very important. Now, if you break down the book, it'll have a major division, probably ending somewhere inside of chapter 4, where we have the early life, even though it prioritizes primarily the birth narratives. So I see that as a a division. And then we have the, the second major division of Matthew deals with the early ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, obviously, is in this early ministry of Christ. So, it may have something to do with Jesus as Messiah. We don't know. We'll have to kind of do our book study to see if we can see some indicators of that. But if we come to that conclusion, then more than likely, it has something to do with this king And kind of a secondary idea with kingship is the kingdom. The Jewish people were looking for the the kingdom that the Messiah would establish. So maybe Matthew has something to do with that, at least maybe in this portion. In fact, the whole book will have something to do with it. And so we, we might be able to find something here in this passage particularly, at least within this context. Okay, so Matthew 5, narrow down the context. I've narrowed it a little bit. This is the early life of Christ. And if you're familiar with Matthew, uh, chapter 5 deals with what? You're welcome to open your Bibles to that passage if you want to. Sermon on the Mount. Very good. Uh, That's an excellent, in other words, that's the big picture observation. In other words, everything in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5 through chapter 7, is contained within that unit, and that's a good descriptive way of describing it. This is a sermon. This is a teaching, apparently, and then commonly referred to as a Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5, 13 through 14 is contained within the Sermon on the Mount. And how does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. How does it go? Beatitudes. Yeah, they're the Beatitudes. Uh, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the word kingdom. Okay, what is he talking about? Oh, he's talking about... There's some relationship here to the kingdom. And perhaps the Sermon on the Mount has something to do with it. And you'll notice the word kingdom uh, occurs very frequently before we get into, into verse 13 and 14. And if you read the, the setting of it, it kind of gives you a little background. He's talking to a multitude that includes disciples. So it's probably a general audience. And uh, because of not only Matthew and because of the early life of Christ and the context of Matthew, you realize that uh, most of the people that Jesus ministered, particularly in the early part, were Jewish people. 
And these are Jewish people that know about the Old Testament. They know about the promises of a Messiah, uh, some of them more so than others, more than likely. And they're hoping and anticipating a messianic person. And if Jesus is writing to that audience to present Jesus as that king, then the Sermon on the Mount has something to do with something along the lines of the declaration of this king, early, an early declaration or an early explanation of this messianic king. So this sermon probably has something to do with the messianic kingdom in some way. Now, we don't know. We haven't exegeted. We're just kind of working our way. We're in chapter 5. I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of the background and the setting. So when we come to the passage, now we want to look individually and we want to break it down. And we see that verses 13 and 14 kind of fit together. And there's a few sentences in there, but that's probably a good paragraph in itself. So we'll break it down and we just start reading it, making observations. You are the salt of the earth, semicolon. But if the salt has become tasteless, comma, how can it be made salty again? We have a question mark, so there's our first sentence. And then we keep reading, so we have two sentences in verse 13. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man, period. Sentence number two. And then he says, you are the light of the world. A little bit different here. You are the light of the world, period. Another sentence. And then it goes on. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we just, now are we just isolating the sentences? We're breaking it down. Now, we might even see a a slight difference from verse 13 through verse 14, and I think 14 goes on as well, where he's talking about salt. So everything in verse 13 is dealing with salt. So, in fact, the word occurs two times, actually three times in a different form there. How can it be made salty again? So this idea of salt. So... In my observation, I'm going to want to think some more about that word. That's that's a non-routine term. Uh, can anyone uh, maybe give me a routine term in there? Tasteless. Mm, I don't know. That that's that's probably that's still that's pretty important. It's still related to this idea. Yeah, that's I true. I would think something like uh the about earth. About earth. Yeah, the Say that again? The The uh, Yeah. Now it's a particular salt and but it's probably not as significant as tasteless and or the word salt. Uh, any words in there that are non-literal? The salt is not literal. He's at least the people first, salt. Yeah, salt is not literal. Is used in at, at least the first usage. Yeah. Okay. And from the analogy, now I, he's going to talk about if the salt has become tasteless, it, it can be. Be made 
Can it be made salty again? Now he's going from the non-literal to the the illustration of what salt does. Uh, or at least that's what we're beginning to observe. See, we're just making observations here. Uh, a good question to ask in your observation, what is the subject of the sentence? The first sentence. First question. You. You. The crowd. Well, no, the grammatical subject is you. You're, uh, and I'm glad you said that because now I can uh, point out what you have done is you've jumped from observation to interpretation. Yep, yep. <laughs> exactly. See the yep. Yeah, you've moved from the observation, which was a good observation, to interpreting what the you means. Yes, yep. That's what we want to do when we move to the next stage. We're just making observations. I'm glad you did that because it illustrates this is what we do. We, we move too fast. We're trying exactly. to ask, we're trying to answer questions before we get all of the data. Uh, so in observing, now what I want to do, um, because that does raise the question, okay, uh, it raises the question, who is the you? Who is it referring to? Now, I may not want to answer that right away, but I want to begin to make other observations that will help me answer that question. So I may want to go back to the context and at the beginning to find out who is Jesus talking to? Who is he talking to? And that may answer the question, but it's an interpretive question, not an observational question. So, you're looking at grammatical categories now and uh, language structure. So, we have the subject. And, and by the way, uh, we're going to do this over and over and over. I'm going to give you some other examples as well. But when you're looking at a sentence, the first thing that you do is you identify the sentence. So, we're, we're first going to identify what we have all the way to the question mark. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless... And as we work through, then when we have made adequate observations on that first sentence, then we'll go to the next one and do do likewise. One of the most important things that you want to observe is what is the subject of the sentence, because that is the main part of the sentence. And we identified you as the subject. What is the main verb of the sentence? Are. Are. Very good. Now, another thing you want to do, uh, I've kind of jumped ahead here. Uh, We'll get into some of this as well. You want to break down a paragraph into its sentences, just like we did here. We're looking at the first one. You also want to break down the sentences. This is all observation, and you can make these observations just from the grammar alone. You want to break down the parts of this sentence. So you may need to review. I didn't introduce that because we're talking about terms, but we'll talk more about this later on. But since we're using this as an illustration, uh, you'll want to break down the, the, the major parts of a sentence. And there are two major parts. There are 
independent clauses and there are dependent clauses. And since we haven't talked about it, I'll just identify them for you. So, you are the salt of the earth, semicolon, that is an independent clause. In fact, it is the major independent clause in this sentence. Now, when you have a but and an and, sometimes you'll have another independent clause. But in this case, it starts with a dependent clause. An if statement is a conditional clause, but if the salt has become tasteless, uh, that's a dependent clause. And now we have, but how can it be made salty again? That's actually a complete idea in itself. That's an independent clause. So you have two independent clauses with a dependent clause in the middle. And it's a question. And if it's an independent clause, every independent clause will have a subject and a verb. In fact, the dependent clause will have a subject and a verb as well. So, in making the observations, uh, we'll make an observation concerning the subject of the dependent clause. And that salt, again, has become... That could be, in English, that could be the verb. Uh, sometimes has become tasteless is the verb, depending on context. So, that would be the subject, and at least has become is the verb. And then, how can it be made salty again? It be made, you have subject it, be made, verb. And it's extremely important to identify subjects and verbs because every sentence, the heart and the essence of it is the subject and the verb. Everything else just tells you something about the subject and the verb. Now, I've kind of gone beyond observing terms here, but I think you get the idea. Is This is what we're doing as we're observing these individual terms. We're not trying to figure out what they mean yet. We're, we're just trying to identify them and, and in terms of uh, grammatical categories, we can make those observations and identify subjects and verbs. Uh, so we made several observations there. We might want to pursue that tasteless a little bit further and uh, the meaning doesn't seem confusing, but because it's so important to that sentence, uh, we may consider it further later on. Uh, a major thing that we'll consider later on is trying to identify the you. Who is he talking about? What is the meaning of the you? And that'll move us into the next stage. Um, let's see. Let's say, let's see if we can do the same thing. Anyone want to give a stab at the second sentence? It is no longer good for anyone, anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What is the independent clause? It is no longer good for anything. That most certainly is the independent clause. 
Is there another independent clause? I would say no. In fact, I don't see a dependent clause. And if that's the case, then we would include except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men is part of the independent clause. Now, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. We're talking about clauses, and we haven't discussed that yet. I'm just kind of jumping ahead. But but these are the kinds of things. Uh, what we want to observe now, what is the subject? Of, let's say we have one independent clause here, and it's the whole sentence. What is the subject of that independent clause? It. It. What? Verb? Is. Is. It. That's the heart of it. Everything else is going to tell us just something about it. Uh, this is an equated, what's called an equative verb. It doesn't have a action to it. So it's kind of equating the it with something else, and the no longer good for anything is what it's equating it to, and there's an exception to it, da-da-da-da-da. But we've got the essence of that sentence as well. Uh, let's do one more, and it'll be time for us to probably wrap it up. Skip down to verse 14. Probably the simplest sentence of all of them is the first one in verse 14. You are the light of the world, and you're getting good at it, so you can identify the subject, right? You. You, and the verb are. And it's interesting that in these, almost all of them are equative verbs. In other words, they're not action verbs unless become tasteless, includes the tasteless idea. But we have kind of things that state something is something else. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So he's uh, he's identifying whoever the you are with other things. And we'll talk some more about that when we get into the interpretive stage. But we're just making these observations. Uh, a good observation is as we work our way, we saw all of these series of equative verbs. Not much action going on here. More, this is something else. You are something. Um, any non-routine words in the first sentence of verse 14? Light. Okay, light. Literal light. Figurative. Yeah. Probably, yeah, he's probably using another metaphor. He used a metaphor or a non-literal salt, and now he's using a non-literal light. So that would be non-literal. And world, I would put that as a non-routine. That seems striking. Um, does that give you a feel? In other words, this is what you're doing. This is in terms of words or terms. You're making observation of terms. This is kind of a just a exercise in doing it. Uh, there's some other things that we'll observe later on. In fact, when we come back next week, 
we'll go beyond observing terms and we'll want to observe structure. And next week I'll define structure. When we talk about language, structure in language is the relationship of terms. So if you have more than one term, you have structure. And we'll talk some more about that next week. Let's see. Mark, you want to close for us today? Sure will. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. You are the God of all creation. You have created us in your image uh, to glorify you in time. And Father, we just praise you for that. We thank you for your word that you have revealed to us. We have the opportunity to get to know you, to understand your thinking, and to make it our thinking. We thank you for this class, and we pray for Dr. Ray as he teaches us uh, the basics of hermeneutics so that we can uh, glorify you by becoming and conforming more and more to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless this class as we uh, go through the week uh, doing the assignment and uh, look forward to uh, rejoining uh, next time uh, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Was this helpful? Does this kind of get you uh, going into the biblical text? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Very helpful. Okay, great. Thank you. Great. Hope hope the whole package is extremely helpful to you. And we'll go slow. We'll go uh, step by step. And then we'll try to put it all together. And next week we'll continue. In fact, all of next week we'll talk about structure as, as well. Well, not structure, but observations. Continue, because this is very, very important. The more and more accurate observations you make, the more accurate will be your interpretation. Okay, have a good week, and we'll meet at the regular time next week. And remember, the assignment number one is due. And if you get it done, just send it. If you're satisfied with it, go ahead and just send it. Good night. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ray. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you.